Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's episode of our podcast, Race and Democracy, we are really honored to have uh, Professor Dr. James G. Basker with us. Uh, Jim Basker is president of the Gilder Lehrman Institute and Richard Gilder Professor of Literary History at Barnard College, Columbia University. He's been president of the Gilder Lehrman Institute since 1997, and he has overseen the development of history education initiatives nationwide, including high school history, uh, teacher seminars, traveling exhibitions, digital archives, and the National History Teacher of the Year Awards Program. Uh, In addition, he is a wonderful scholar. His publications include Amazing Grace, Poems About Slavery, 1660 to 1810, Early American Abolitionists, and American Anti-Slavery Writing, Colonial Beginnings to Emancipation, um, as well as numerous essays uh, and educational booklets on various topics in English and American history and literature. Uh, Jim Basker, Jim, welcome to Race and Democracy. Well, Neil, thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. I want to have a conversation with you today about public history and really the vitality of public history and the necessity of public history um, in the context of American democracy in the 21st century, but especially right now. We're all experiencing this pandemic, and we've all seen or at least read reports of this global pandemic, but really in the United States, the way in which it's been cleaving along racial and economic Um, axes, uh, where there's been disparate impact, depending on what community, really what zip code, what neighborhood you live in. And sort of Black and Latinx and immigrant and Native American uh, communities seem to be hit the hardest by this, both in terms of the illness, but also in terms of um, their access to education, healthcare, um, their proximity to the criminal justice system. So I want to talk about what public history can do, because one of the things, as you know, as a historian, we have faced um, challenges similar to this, maybe not exactly this challenge uh, in the long history of the United States. And, and we might have some clues on what to do moving forward when we, when we examine history. Well, it's a, it's a big question, Peniel, and my, and my first take would be to talk about it in two ways. Um, even before the pandemic, um, I would have said that history is the most important subject for all of us in this American Republic. We hope democracy. Um, all of us could live our lives without, you know, French or chemistry or some of the subjects we had in high school. But, but without a really uh, good grounding in American history, we cannot be knowledgeable, judicious, fair, and just uh, American citizens and voters. So. Um, it's the most important subject for all of us. The other thing I would say is in the face of the pandemic, of course, the exactly the divisions and inequities that you're talking about have um, emerged. We've tried uh, our best to adapt to this crisis by making what we do more available to people everywhere, um, which is to say with some of our programs that were local and in person and had restricted in- enrollments, we've uh, opened them up nationally. Um, we started a pop-up history school 
free uh, online with six history teachers of the year from across the country, master teachers doing their individual subjects. And um, we're going to continue that in the summer uh, summer school, doing free online AP US history prep courses, a college survey course, also a course on uh, civil rights. Using the curriculum, Skip Gates, our trustee, Henry Louis Gates from Harvard has given us, but led by Alicia Butler, who is the 2019 National History Teacher of the Year, African-American teacher in Washington, D.C., an absolutely brilliant and wonderful uh, personality and teacher. She'll lead that course. So our first response has been, um, let's make the things we do available to the largest number of people um, so that they can come to us regardless of whether their school is continuing to function well or not, whether they have a strong teacher or not. Uh, we're trying to... Uh, you know, open up access for people across the country. And there's more we can do. I mean, the public history subjects are terribly important. We have a book breaks program where we're bringing major historians um, onto a talk show every Sunday at two. And we've had Eric Foner talking about second founding. We've had Annette Gordon-Reed talking about the Hemings of Monticello. I mean, these are books and subjects that every American should know about. Um, so we're very much committed to this and will be in the future. I want to keep on this tack of public history and the why history is so important to, I like what you talked about in terms of to make informed citizens, voters, people who have judgment. Um, why do you think we've lost some aspect of understanding our history, American history, in a widespread way? Because we think about the Cold War and the post-war American period, it seemed that there were some fundamental um, precepts of American history that it seemed that there was a national understanding of, even if there was a, a debate on points of emphasis. But we used to have, I think, a, a national understanding on things like First Amendment rights, even the Second Amendment. Second Amendment didn't used to be something that was um, very controversial. Yeah. And certainly the civil rights movement, we think about Dr. King, uh, and the civil rights movement really helped um, turn racial justice into sort of one of these core precepts of American democracy, even as abolitionists and folks you've studied and written about extensively tried to do the same. But I think until we get to the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Acts, the Voting Rights Act, we don't really have that that oomph in there. What, what have we lost um, where we can have really American history being denigrated even by politicians um, and elected leaders um, and, and the idea that history doesn't matter? Well, uh, I look at it with two main themes in mind, Peniel, and I, and I think you're so right. I mean, the, the first one is we live in a time when uh, history has been relegated to second-class importance. Uh, we live in an era when STEM subjects are emphasized, and uh, I guess in a high-tech uh, developed society that, of course, is important. And literacy and language arts have been emphasized, and those are too important. But history is, for a variety of reasons, um, been relegated to a lower importance. And I think that's all wrong. And I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to push back on it. But in the meantime, I think uh, outside the curriculum, those in the university world, those who do public history of the kind you're doing through this medium, those that we're, try we're trying to do with our programs, we, 
we try to reach beyond um, the curricular limitations, the local political limitations, and make the important stories of American history available to teachers um, in our institutes, to students through our programs uh, and our resources online, and through certain programs like the Gilder Lehrman Center on Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale, which is gives the Frederick Douglass Book Prize every year to the book, best book on that subject. We've been doing that for 20 years. Um, so that's there's one area, sort of bringing it back to the fore as important. Uh, I think the other, frankly, and, and you know this very well as a scholar, is that in a period that Skip Gates writes about in um, Stony the Road, the long Jim Crow era after Reconstruction, um, Others took over the narrative. The narrative of American history was taken over by people who wanted us to forget about slavery and the miseries of racism, uh, even in the Reconstruction period, wanted that to disappear or be told in a new way. So films like Birth of a Nation and and Gone with the Wind became the governing uh, storyline as false as they were. And the real stories were lost. I'm working on a book right now that Library of America is going to publish in a year called, uh, it's a collection of writings called uh, Black Writers of the Founding Era. And it's about Mm. 100 writers whose works survive, as I've spent five years pulling them together in the period from 1760 to 1800. One of the documents I found was a petition, which I would say actually marks the moment that the civil rights movement began. And it's not in the 1960s, and it's not even in Reconstruction. It's a petition that was signed by eight African Americans on January 13, 1777, mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. And they quote the language of the Declaration of Independence as they're asking for an end to slavery in Massachusetts. Uh, and I would contend that the Declaration of Independence had established a notion that there were rights, inalienable rights. And immediately the African-Americans in Boston were appropriating those, were trying to leverage that idea of natural rights and alienable rights as civil rights in their petition. And that's the kind of history I think we need to restore to view. I want to um, use that as a point of departure to talk about the 1619 Project and really Gilder Lehrman and this idea of slavery, racial slavery from even before the founding of the United States. We think about 1619 and Jamestown and the idea of 20 and odd uh, Africans who are coming over from um, Angola uh, by uh, a British slaver that had taken over uh, a Portuguese uh, slave ship and sort of taken those Africans to Jamestown, Virginia. Um, That 1619 project has been a hugely successful public history project um, that has sparked some controversy, too, after winning the Pulitzer Prize, uh, because some people have made the argument that it's not, um, um, it's not a triumphant enough history. It's not a celebratory history. And, and I want to um, really dive into that with you, because you're a historian of slavery, of abolition. Um, one, why do you think it's so important to talk about slavery, both publicly, but also to somehow be able to teach our children, especially in secondary education, but even before about racial slavery, its complexity and its connection to today. And why do you think um, there's so much criticism 
of a project that has done that, I think really beautifully um, and even won the Pulitzer Prize. But like I said, not without controversy, this 1619 project, which New York Times published as a multimedia project online. Teachers have been using this. And I think in a lot of ways, um, that project is connected to what Gilder Lehrman has been trying to do for decades. Well, you're so right. And uh, for me personally, as a scholar, I began working in the history of slavery and abolition, especially as manifest in literature and in cultural history um, since the early 1990s. But for the Institute, um, the very first teacher seminar we sponsored back in 1995 was led by David Brian Davis, one of the great scholars mm-hmm. of transatlantic slavery um, at Yale. And in fact, we've had at least one teacher seminar every year, often several, on some aspect of the history of slavery and abolition for 25 years running. So it's absolutely core um, to our notion of what a proper representation of American history represents. Um, And there are different ways to talk about it, Peniel, as you know. One of the things I sometimes say is, um, you know, when I've been a professor for more than 35 years, and sometimes when people come on campus and they say, I want to talk to somebody about the history of slavery, they say, oh, we'll go over to the Africana Studies Department there, as if it were just a black subject, only (laughs) interesting to black people. And that's insane. I mean, by definition, without white and black people, there was no slavery or slave trade. It, <laughs> it involves us both by definition from the outset. So that's the first kind of misunderstanding that somehow this is just of interest to black people. Um, and when we go back to what the 1619 Project has done, it has surfaced the centrality of slavery in the American story. Um and, you know, yes, there are scholarly critiques that come along and, and um, uh, people have pointed out there, were, you know, that the Spanish had slavery for 100 years before that. And mm-hmm. there were slaves in Florida and Georgia, 1520s and so on, and slave rebellions. So there's a there's a broader context. Yes. But the importance of slavery to the American story is there. And sometimes you really have to be very dramatic and emphatic to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that somehow civil rights burst on the agenda, you know, as a political movement in the 1960s, without having a multi-hundred year history behind it, um, is, you know, it's just not to understand. It's to be uh, without memory. Mm -hmm. And a human being can't exist properly without memory, nor can a country. So we have to restore that memory to understand what the concerns are, what understand what the inherited deprivations and discriminations are. Um, I found in my work, for example, that in South Carolina, immediately after the Constitution was ratified, there were new discriminatory taxes passed on African Americans in in the independent state of South Carolina that hadn't existed under the British when it was a colony. Um, And so this idea of discriminatory of poll taxes and other um, punitive measures levied on on black people go back to every phase of our history. And they would go a long way if the white community were fully educated. And I speak as a a white person myself, but in a mixed race family, my wife is African-American and we have mixed race children. Uh, It's a subject that all of us need to understand so that we can understand each other today. And I want to um, amplify that point, Jim. 
when we think about why is slavery and the study of slavery all the way up until the present so important um, for elementary teachers to know, so important for our uh, business leaders in Silicon Valley folks to know, sort of a narrative of um, racial slavery to the present, its, its impact and its relationship with capitalism, um, whether we're thinking about cotton or sugar or um, agricultural production or industrial production, why is that so important? What is it? What what light does it shed um, in the 21st century that our students who are are heading into this globalized uh, world, uh, this world of, of of much inequality but much opportunity too? Why is it so important for them to know that history? Well, um, I'm not an economic historian, and so anything I say about Capitalism uh, will be uninformed, um, although I know from history there were some very successful uh, black capitalists all the way back to Laura Equiano in some ways. Uh, but um, the system that resulted from slavery and its legacy, some people think that slavery beca- began because of racism. I, I think it, slavery in the broader global sense always began because of a power relations where people could be made slaves. The Romans had slaves from every ethnic group in the world. Uh, But in fact, in America, racism was the outcome of slavery as much as it was the cause. So that even when slavery as an institution or a practice ended, racism continued. And it therefore found ways that the collective racism um, that had become habitual, deeply embedded in society, it found other ways to deprive black people of equality, some of them economic, some of them political, some of them through terrorism, like lynching uh, and the activities of the KKK, Uh, many of them with serious economic consequences, whether you're looking at those discriminatory taxes against black people who were trying to succeed even as free people and in uh, various parts of the country in the beginning. Uh, But at other moments, you know, when the Homestead Act gave Uh, white people, uh, free land in the West, but not black people, all the way down to redlining in modern real estate sales and the development of neighborhoods and cities. There were actually measurable financial punitive disadvantages imposed upon black people at every stage of our history out of a kind of habitual, deeply embedded racism. And so when people talk about reparations, which is a complicated and uh, very political topic, there are ways that one could measure the economic harm, the financial harm with compound damages that might be argued for from a financial point of view. Uh, I'm not sure that will ever work financially, but uh, certainly uh, extra efforts at education, inclusion, um, and and all the support that we can build into our social and political policies, I I think, uh, are called for. And there's a deep justification for that call. Well, in terms of the work you're doing at Gilder Lehrman, um, what can we do to create, and is it even possible right now, um, a national American history narrative that's inclusive? That's inclusive with obviously African-American, but Latinx, um, LGBTQ. Certainly, I understand that scholars, scholars at Columbia University, University of Texas, all across the country are doing and writing those inclusive histories. But we still have not produced sort of this new consensus uh, 
um, so to speak, this new sort of coherent narrative of American history and American democracy that can inform um, both citizens in terms of voting, but also inform these debates that we're having about immigration, about the criminal justice system, about voting rights, Black Lives Matter, women's rights, just so many different um, issues. What, if anything, can be done? Because certainly we used to have a coherent narrative, and I'm not making the claim that that narrative was perfect. I think it was deeply flawed. But right now, what can we do? Because it seems like we're a, uh, we're a republic, and like you say, to, to repeat you, um, hopefully a democracy, where the narrative is untethered to our reality. Yes, I think, Peniel, I mean, uh, I think you and I share um, a sense of the importance of this mission and how much work there is to do. At Gilder Lehrman, we have been trying for more than 20 years to bring uh, the top scholars into contact with teachers. Unlike most countries in the world, we don't have a national department of education that sets a national curriculum. As you know, it's always locally determined state by state and even uh, town by town or school district by school district. Sometimes different teachers in the same hallway are teaching a different curriculum or syllabus. Um, so our strategy has been to bring the best scholars, you know, from Eric Foner and David Brian Davis and Annette Gordon-Reed uh, across the spectrum now of hundreds into contact with teachers because teachers are the key um, to this collective educational effort to make them aware of all of these important stories. We were also trying to reach out in other ways, though, um, by uh, supporting projects around the history of slavery and abolition, such as the, um, the center, the Gilder Lehrman Center on Slavery at Yale. And now we're looking to offer, um, a, in the wake of this crisis, some version of an online Saturday Academy that would be free and open to students anywhere in the country. And in it, we hope to be presenting um, history courses that do integrate the full history of the African-American experience, the immigrant experience, women's history, I mean, all of the human components of the great tapestry, um, the great epic of American history, um, which I think can be seen in really heroic terms. Um, you know, the, the, the narrative doesn't have to be simply a dismal a uh, uh, sad story or even a, a relentless critique. I mean, the heroism of the black people, the women's suffragettes, the immigrants who've succeeded, there is tremendous human aspiration and success in that collective story with a long way to go. Um, but I think it can be told in an integrated and coherent way. Um, and we're going to keep trying. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right because uh, one of the, the last question I wanted to ask you was about optimism, because I think that uh, American history is very dramatic. It's very uh, global. Um, you know, you are uh, a cultural and literary historian, so we all are very much interested in that and popular culture as well. So I do think that when we think about American history and when we're teaching it to the public, that we should be critical, but at the same time, uh, American history does have uh, triumphant points and high points and water watershed moments that really show us the power of the human spirit and the power of democracy, uh, the power of political coalitions, um, interracial movements, so many different um, you know movements for for democracy and justice. So how can we 
uh, and this will be my my last question. When we think about moving forward, especially in the context of the pandemic, um, especially in context of uh, what's happening in the 21st century, where we have seen more racial division, we've gone from the presidency of Barack Obama to the current president, where we've seen much more racial division, much more um, divisive rhetoric from politicians. We've seen um, white supremacist marches in Charlottesville, Virginia, things that as historians, we know we've read about, but certainly not things I expected to see in my lifetime on, on the national stage in this way. How can we both acknowledge where we're at, but also use our history to chart a way forward where we, we are thinking optimistically and positively, that we're saying, hey, we have serious challenges and conflicts and contentions but our history provides a context for us to see our way through and really to triumph over this. Well, I think we have to tell the stories, first of all, and in, and in media that actually reach people. And I, I think the stories that we choose to tell, tell us a lot about ourselves. Uh, I remember the film Glory from when it first came out. <laughs> yes about the Massachusetts 54th. I thought it was, you know, one of the, the great civil war, great mil military history, and then, you know, accidentally, one of the great African-American stories ever told. But we should have had more stories like that. Um, stories that were true to the historical conditions of discrimination and so forth, and were true to the actual grit and persistence and heroism uh, of the black actors themselves. We have not had enough of that. Um, so I think uh, when we when we look to popular culture, I think we, that there are better choices to make in terms of the writers and producers and um, what's available um, to the world more largely. I think we need also to look at institutions that have the power to tell the story. Um, the universities, the kinds of public history projects you're pursuing in our institute, uh, I think we need to make people uh, aware. I think we need to harness popular culture. We've partnered with Hamilton to do outreach to uh, students uh, in K-12 schools, Title I schools, the poorest schools in America. Um, and at first it was only where the theater production was going, but now during this pandemic, we're actually doing it online, free for students and their families everywhere, regardless of the theater. We've opened the curriculum up to them. But that's an inclusive story where Miranda retold American history in, in an inclusive way. He put actors in these roles uh, so that audiences saw people who looked like them and they could imagine an America that included them and spoke in their idiom and with their cultural and political priorities. So there are many, many di directions and dimensions to this struggle, um, but it's, it's all important. And I think uh, through cultural life, we can often share things that with our political divisions and even our kind of residential and segregated community divisions, uh, we might not. Sports, the military, mm -hmm. these are places where the races um, mix more easily and more mm -hmm. happily with each other in so many ways and where there's so much success to trumpet. So I think we, I think we need to keep focusing on those positives and move the story forward while being fully informed about the history at the heart of our country. All right, we'll leave it right there. We have to share our stories, share our narratives uh, 
in pursuit of building both racial and political unity, um, but also amplifying democracy, small d democracy uh, here in the United States. Uh, Jim Basker, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Jim Basker is president of the Gilder Lehrman Institute and Richard Gilder Professor of Literary History at Barnard College, Columbia University. Um, he has been president of Gilder Lehrman since 1997 and overseeing the development of just numerous history education initiatives nationally, uh, including one uh, with, with Lynn manuel uh, Miranda and Hamilton, which is really one of the best, most important Broadway plays, if not the best ever. Uh, his publications include Amazing Grace, Poems About Slavery, 1660 to 1810, American Abolitionist and American Anti-Slavery Writing, Colonial Beginnings to Emancipation. And you're working on a new book, Jim. The new book's title is? It's uh, Black Writers of the Founding Era. Black Writers of the Founding Era, which will be out next year. And is that by Library? Library of America is publishing it. Okay, awesome. So Jim Basker, thank you for for joining us here at Race and Democracy. Thank you, Peniel. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.